Welcome to episode four of the Animal Chat podcast with me, Matthew Payne. And me, Harry Ekman. How's it going, Matt? It's going really well, Harry. How about you, mate? I'm doing really well. How's the podcast going? I see you've been looking at some figures. Harry, well, I know we both want to say a huge thank you to everyone that has downloaded and listened to us, uh, a pair of morons, talking about animals with some amazing guests. Absolutely. We we are... Blown away. Blown away by the number of people that have been listening to the podcast so far. It's it's crazy. I mean, we we need to thank people from Sri Lanka, Colombia, India, uh, people listening to us in Mexico, throughout Europe. It's it's unbelievable. I'm blown away. And we've only been doing it for by the time this podcast comes out a couple of weeks. So it's um, yeah, that's it's, amazing. It is incredible. And just remember, everyone, that you can listen to episode one, two, and three. If you haven't listened to all three yet, they're still available. We've got Tim Harrison on episode two and the amazing Lola Weber on episode three. Uh, before we go on to our guest today, Harry, I know we wanted to speak about a few of our most important yeah. followers. I mean, we have gone global, haven't we, Harry? We have spread around the world like some kind of virus. <laughs> Too soon. Oh gosh. Uh, well, too it's soon. in there now, isn't it? So, it's well, out there now. Listen, okay. After Colombia disappear and Canada and Sri Lanka no longer listen to us, we'll understand whether that works or not. Um, as you know, we have social media pages, Facebook. We have some very passionate, interesting fans. We are building quite a female support base on Twitter. Did you know that? I I had no idea. We are. It's very strange and. Yeah, for example, Charlotte71596, she's very friendly. She's looking for some fun. Uh, Don't forget to know her personally. Um, And I mean, I think this is forward, but maybe this is me being British. But she says that if we follow her, she'll send us a nude photo. Wow, that's amazing. What was her name again? Charlotte what? (laughs) Charlotte underscore 71596. She oh nine five nine six uh, no I I dated nine five once oh uh, mate but this this must be her sister yeah it must be must be but yeah. she just I mean it's it's a memorable surname yeah she as she quotes herself has never been your average girl well she wouldn't be listening to this podcast no yep yeah. um, I'm not going to tell you what flavor her favorite <laughs> soda is because that's um yeah it's dog meat it's dog meat isn't oh. it. <laughs> Oh, goodness. So, um, yeah. Thank you, Charlotte, wow. for your continued support on social media. Um, she, she's not our typical demographic. I'll, I'll give you that. Yeah, yeah. But you know what? This pod, this she podcast, wasn't who we were expecting to be listening to this we're podcast. We're like, demographics, Harry. We are reaching out people all around the world. So, uh, but it all That's... is thank you to everyone that has downloaded our podcast. We are, it is, I can't tell you how odd it is to think that people in Singapore and South Korea are actually listening to Harry and I and these amazing guests. It's it's so weird. So like, It's amazing. Oh, it really is. Yeah. Thank you so much for everybody that's listening, particularly like the people that have given us support and encouragement to even mm-hmm. do this in the first place it means a huge amount. Yeah, it really, really does. And like I say, please, 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 if you've, if you've listened to one of the episodes, check out some of the other ones, um, share, don't forget to go to subscribe and follow and review and all that stuff because it helps us get more, uh, more listeners. So thank you so much to everyone. So in episode three last week, Harry and I had the absolute privilege of speaking to Lola Weber. If you haven't listened to that one, please listen to it. Lola is an absolute inspiration. It's the first time I actually met Lola and I was blown away. I know she's part of Change for Animals, which Harry is the... Is that you, the 
The president, CEO, what's your title? CEO, co-founder. Wow. Co-founder and CEO. Hello. 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 <laughs> um, so, yeah, we, we had I we had the absolute pleasure of speaking to Lola. And Lola, if you haven't listened to it, talked to us about a really emotional topic, the dog meat trade in Asia, and her incredible efforts to basically end it across the region. So this time, though, we're going to sort of stay for this episode in the same region, but we're going to look at another dog project run by the incredible Mark and Sam at Dogstar, they really are global leaders when it comes to dog welfare projects. And I know you, Harry, have known them for some time. So yeah, um, sure. Sam, Samantha Green and Mark Green, husband and wife team from the UK. I've known them for, oh, must be nine years or more now uh, from the early days of when they set up their, their project Dogstar Foundation. Um, so they're a couple who moved over to Sri Lanka and they'll talk about their own story, but what they've managed to build over there from the beginnings of just helping one single dog to turning into one of possibly the, the best dog population management projects going on in the world today. The numbers of animals they've helped are staggering. The impact they're having in Sri Lanka is incredible. Their story is, is really inspiring, uh, what led them to go to Sri Lanka in the first place. And they're also just really lovely people. So it's really exciting to have been able to chat to them and find out their story and be able to share that with everybody. So I suppose now would be a good time to just listen in and enjoy the podcast. I think one of the main motivations for Harry and I starting this podcast is learning about the people. How did you end up in Sri Lanka? Uh, I know it's quite a broad question, but how did you both end up where you are now in Sri Lanka? Where, where did all that, where did that journey start for you? Um, totally by accident is the, the short answer. A slightly longer answer. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it, it could have been any country in the world. We, we both worked on the, the London Underground. And um, we were heavily impacted by, by the tube bombings in 2005. I worked on the Allgate site, Samantha worked on the Edgware Road site as engineering staff. And we worked with the police and everybody else. And to sort of cut a long story short, Samantha ended up leaving London Underground uh, a, a little while after because of reorganisations and everything else and needed to do a bit of self-healing, really. So I, someone just mentioned Sri Lanka yeah, to Yeah, someone her. mentioned Sri Lanka. So, yeah, I mean, like, like Mark said, we'd, we'd been involved in the tube bombings. We'd worked um, within the scene of crime with the police. It was, though we were railway staff and we were engineering coordinators, and, and I, at that point, ran an engineering control room that, that used to respond to all things that had broken. So the actual engineering part of it was familiar, but suddenly being in the middle of, the terrorist Whoa. attack and and the crime scene and, and all of the sort of emergency services um, set up for us was was really confronting and I think I think anyone who lived in London at the time was shocked by the 2005 mm. bombings um, but mm. I think when 
when you were working inside the crime scene, and that was on, on the trains that had been bombed and with the, the victims who were, were still in situ, and to see their personal belongings and to see you know, things as benign as you know a handbag or a, mm. a mobile phone, and to sort of think, well, gosh, somebody left work or they left home this morning to go to work, and they probably argued with their, their spouse about whose turn it was to put the, the, the bins out. And It's a very odd, yeah. very uncomfortable feeling. Almost honest, places your mortality, I think. Yeah. I yeah. think that, that because of that, and, and the company was reorganising, and there was an opportunity for me to, to step out from, from my work. And, and as Mark said, we, we were both we were probably quite broken individuals, I would say. You don't fair. always know it at the time, though. No, yeah. he can't carry on. Um, Stiff British upper lip. Yeah, and possibly, I think we would be honest to say, probably both had post-traumatic stress disorder, but <laughs> we're, we're, we're not admitting it. So, yeah, very much for me, um, I was going to take a few months off, and my plan was to sort of get back into work later in the year, do more of the same with Ralph Consulting. And, and somebody had mentioned Sri Lanka, and they'd mentioned volunteering, and I'd never done a gap year. I'd left school at 16 and went straight to the railways, as Mark had. And it just seemed a really good idea just to travel for eight weeks. Oh, how misguided that was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so that, that was generally that the plan was just to come and travel around on my own. And it, it was sort of pre-smartphones, pre-internet, pre-Facebook. So it was very um, sort of solo travel. Um, I used to phone in once a week. I used to get, get a little scratch card. I'd have a phone and number and mm. get put through with the international operator. So the whole idea was I would just take eight weeks off from from everything and then come back and get another job. And that eight was, weeks. Eight weeks. That's all it was. She uh, couldn't even be <laughs> for uh, that. Little. I actually am proud to say that I lasted an entire 28 days before I set the charity up. So I think that's quite impressive. Um, <laughs> what were you doing the previous 27? I was just building up to it. Building so up, getting to up to the jet it. lag. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, so, we had always done things with rescue dogs and things before. We used to, prior to all of this, we used to volunteer at the Greyhound Rescue, cleaning out kennels at weekends and bits and pieces like that. Walking dogs. Walking yeah. dogs. So, and fostering dogs. Yeah, so we weren't sort of unfamiliar with animal welfare, animal rescue and such. But more, more from a volunteering perspective and... And it's not, just when Sam came over to Sri Lanka, it all went a bit mad, really. <laughs> so, so what was that? What was that moment that you know you said twenty eight days in? What was the trigger? What was the moment that made you realise that you know you wanted to do something over in Sri Lanka? Was it a single event or was it a gradual experience? I think it was a bit of both. There was a gradual experience in that I saw street dogs everywhere, and if you've you sort of travelled to Asia, you. Um, you will see street dogs. They're just they're on every corner. They're just part of, of the fabric of life. And if you come from the UK, where, where stray dogs aren't tolerated and they're picked up and taken away, just seeing dogs on the street is really confronting. Um, and even though some of those dogs have actually quite good welfare, it's just that oh my gosh, there are dogs everywhere. But then there was one particular there was dog. One particular though, wasn't dog. It? Your little heart dog. My little heart dog. Um, but I think I'd spent the first twenty-seven days saying to people. There's a lot of dogs around here. Someone should really do something about this. You know, these, and there's a lot of, you know, quite quite sick dogs and quite emaciated dogs. And as, as part of the work I was doing over here, I was volunteering um, for another organisation, I'd been asked with a group of other travellers if we would just do some conversational English classes with some children 
in a temple every afternoon at four o'clock. Um, and these, these were kids that were learning English at school and could we just go and sit and talk to them? And, and we were doing that. And we'd go into this temple every day. All the kids would be there, very, very loud, excited. Um, so didn't, never really saw what the temple looked like without lots of children running around. <laughs> On a particular day, and it was September 28th, 2006. Sure. <laughs> etched into, uh, into my memory. Um, I had a bit of a headache, and I said to some of the others, I'm just going to sit outside for 10 minutes because there's a lot of excited kids here. And I basically come to the realisation at that point that I was never going to be a teacher. That was definitely what was not going to happen. And I was sitting on the temple steps, and for the first time I was sort of sitting in the temple on my own, and I saw these dogs, and they were very, very small puppies. And they were looking at me, and I was looking at them, and, and they were small, sort of three, four-week-old puppies. And one of them decided that it would get very brave and come over and then sort of jumped onto my lap and threw itself upside down. And it was like, look at me, I'm just the cutest thing ever. And, and she was. And I think at that point, I was like, oh, gosh, you know, these, these are tiny little puppies that are way too small. There's no mummy dog around. And they you, were. You didn't mention the fleas that ah, were yes. jumping off this cute puppy. Yeah, the, and that's the, this puppy was absolutely covered with fleas. And at that point, I had. Um, I'd already been flea treating a dog that was at my boarding house and I'd got Mark to send some frontline over from the UK. So I'm sitting there working out that if I go back and get one tube of frontline and I put it on all these puppies, you know, that, that could be my good deed for the day. And then I'm sitting there thinking, can you even put frontline on puppies that are that small? But I thought, well, there's bound to be a, a little leaflet in the box. I'll have a look. So I just decided to just do my good deed for the day and go and and get some frontline for these puppies. And I asked somebody at my where I was living if they would like help me explain to the monk that what I was doing. This is uh, where Samantha's deep secret comes out. She lied to a monk. I didn't lie. I didn't tell <gasps> the truth. That's there's a difference. So first of all, I'm going to phone the monk, and I'm like, wow, monks have got phones. This is like. I, my whole experience of monks was like Kung Fu, Shaolin monks. As a, as a, <laughs> I'm like, monks have got phones? Wow, this is amazing. So, you know, and I don't know that I explained to the guy what I was doing. I don't know what he told the monks. I mean, probably all three of us had no, like, massive miscommunication. I don't think anybody knew what was going on. But I went back to the, the temple and I had sort of, you know, decided that I was going to apply this front line onto these puppies and... As I'm, I'm frontlining these puppies, the monk comes over, and yeah, this is where um, I, I had. What are you doing, madam? <laughs> is what he said. And I said, I'm, I'm putting some medicine on the dogs to get rid of the insects. And he, he said, Will it do any harm? And I said, Not to the dogs, no. <laughs> I'm thinking, I don't know, are you allowed to put, are you allowed to kill fleas in a temple? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> some sort of diplomatic incident and he sort of looked at me for a long time and I thought god this guy knows what frontline is I'm busted like I'm absolutely in trouble now and, and after what seemed like a long time he said to me I have another dog that needs medicine will you come and I sort of walked around the back of this sort of temple with with this monk clutching my tube of frontline and he just presented me with a dog that was just well at that point was the worst dog i had ever seen in my life it was an emaciated um dog um that had almost no fur whatsoever she incredibly bad mange 
and a broken leg and some open sores. And she was just laying on a flower sack. And as Mark once said, what did he say to me? You'll make her better, no? <laughs> and hmm. I, I was I think actually... Sam's reaction holding a tube of front line was, not with not this, with this one, no. And I, I think that, you know, I was very much going to say to him, no, no, absolutely not. Am I going to make you a lot better with, with a tube of front line? Then he said it again. And he, he seemed very convinced about this. And then I looked at the dog and then she looked at me and she looked into me. She, she absolutely, this dog, every ounce of suffering in her life was visible in her eyes at that point. And even though I was standing in a foreign country that I had no language capacity for, I just found myself saying yes, because it seemed to be the only thing that I could say. And, and then I had to sort of work out how I was going to make good on that promise. And by complete luck, I had met a vet who had, was working at the university here a couple of weeks previously. And I got somebody who knew him to phone him and explain the situation. And he was, sort of, you know, this, is, this is very common. These dogs are everywhere. But, you know, yes, we can, we can come and help you. And there was actually a team from his university that had been out attending an elephant. And he just said, look, these guys can come and help you and you know, they'll, they'll, they'll see what they can do. And that was really where it started. They did come out. They did help me with the dog. They, they certainly saved her life. See, I would have done a runner. <laughs> I'd have said to them, yeah, oh, yeah, sure, no problem, mate. Back in a little while and legged it. <laughs> and I think Sam might have thought about doing it. But when she said that she would go and get help, basically... The monk just stood there and said, good, I will sit and wait for you. Uh, yeah, he and he then sat down next to this dog and basically wasn't going to move until she came back later. And I, I think it was about four and a half hours I got back and he was still sitting on the stool next to the dog, sort of fanning her. Um, so I think yeah, if I hadn't gone back, he would have just sat, for you. <laughs> sat there all night. And, and then really that was, I mean, that was all the same night. That was all the same day. Um, and the next morning I woke up and I just had this idea that, it would be really difficult to leave in four weeks and not have anything in place for this dog and the other dogs at his temple. And just had the idea for, for setting something up that would be longer term than just treating this she one She sent dog. me a text. I did. I sent you a text. And I didn't keep it, unfortunately, <laughs> but the text was basically, you know, hello, dear, we're going to employ a vet. It will cost us £40 a month. 45 Oh, £45. But it will have no other impact on us. <laughs> that was literally it. Through this, this vet I'd met at the university, he'd sort of said, look, one of our graduates is just literally finishing his training. He, he's coming to the local area to set up his own practice. And, you know, if you speak to him and you could set something up. And, and that was what I'd agreed. For £45 a month, he was going to come out, treat the dogs at the temple, do some sterilizations, look after some, and it was going to be this very small scale thing with us just privately funding this sort of local vet. And within days, it became evident that there was a much bigger need. Everywhere I looked, it, it was overpopulation was the problem. Every problem that there was, overpopulation was the cause of it. And that's when we started to really think about Spain neuter, but even then it was still quite low level. It was still around those those villages and those monks. And, and I mean, it, it was just pure chance it was Sri Lanka. Right? And pure it, chance it, it that... It just could have been well, any country in the world, really. It could have been, but I did ask the monk why he asked me, of all the people that he'd ever seen in the temple. And he did a bit of an eat, pray, love moment on me. And he said, I asked you because I, 
I'd been waiting for you for a long time and I knew you would help. So hard to say. Well, I talk about guilt, you know. <laughs> Do you think that, um, I mean, obviously you, you, you were saying before about you getting away from the, the trauma that you'd experienced in London and it was an opportunity to escape and kind of come to peace with that or at least come to some kind of uh, acceptance of that, I guess. I can't imagine what that must have been like for you. But do you think that, I mean, that must have played a part in the way that you saw the situation there, saw a need and, uh, and, and saw an opportunity to help. Do you think if you had gone there in a different situation, you would have seen things differently? How much of, how much of that experience in London do you think played a part in, in the way you felt and the choice that I, you made there? I think there? a lot. I think yeah. that prior to, to the tube bombings, we were... We were corporate people. Yeah, yeah, first in the office, last out of the office, always volunteering for the extra bits. You spend all your time working and everything else. And I think the experience from the bombing and the realisation of the impact of that and then this other element, it uh, I think I we think definitely did look at it with very different eyes, to be honest. I, I think so, and I think mm. because it was such a well-publicised event and lots of the um, victims' families gave interviews to the press and to the media. You really got to, you got to know about the people that were involved and you got to know about their lives. And, and it was very difficult, I think, to, to realise that all of those people had, had full and meaningful yeah. lives, had, had died in a, in a really tragically, you know, violent attack. And I think it was also, there were a lot of people were very angry and I think we, we were really careful. We didn't want to be angry about afterwards. And it was it was hard because when you've seen the things you've seen, it, it can be difficult. But it was we didn't want to be defined by that anger and we didn't want to mm. be bitter or to start becoming frightened of individuals or subsections of society. So I think that probably coming out to another country with that, that sort of work is not everything. As you know, as we thought, and, and possibly um, not the be all and end all that end you always all. think it is. And the, I think the other thing we both said was that we really got a feeling of mortality. And I think I was thirty three at the time. Oh, we were young. We were so then. young. We were really young. But I think we suddenly realised that actually you've got a finite amount of time, and and perhaps it's best spent doing it with something that that has. Uh, a more more reward than making money for someone else, which is probably what we were doing in the yeah. last couple of years of our respective careers. That's really interesting. It's really powerful stuff. I think. Are you, how did you feel, Mark, when you were? What what did? At what point did you go over and join Samantha in Sri Lanka? What was your journey to getting over there then? I, I was sort of lagged along behind, really. Um, so Samantha left, and then started to spend slightly more time in Sri Lanka. I was limited in times to get over here because of sort of being able to get time away from work. Um, and it, it took me quite some about time year, to sort I of think. follow on, Possibly didn't it? About a year, year or so afterwards. Yeah. But I, I think part of the thing is we, we were both, both sort of quite damaged from that experience, but we didn't necessarily realise. I think Samantha started healing a little bit quicker than I did because her focus came to looking at the dogs and everything else here. And I, I dragged along a little bit behind that with just this feeling of morbid gloom a lot of the time, to be fair. Mm. 
you know, stopping the treadmill and going into work and everything else and still feeling a lot of those emotions. When did you make the, um, the decision to shift onto this? I mean, anybody that's been anywhere and seen an animal on the street or an animal suffering when they've been on holiday is, is going to recognize some of what you said. You know, it's, it's something that it's very hard to look away from and and people will sometimes help or, or, or feed the animal that they see. But obviously there's a big step between that and hiring a vet for 45 pounds a month and then going up to the next levels that you did. And so uh, at what point did, did that become a natural progression and you decide that, yeah, this is, this is going to be the thing that we do? It, it takes a long time. It's incremental, really. Because, I mean, Sam treated the first dogs, employed this one vet, and that carried on for a little while, actually. And then we helped set that vet up with their own clinic properly with some equipment and other bits and pieces. And locally, we carried on, started to do low-scale spay neuter. In effect, we provided vouchers and you know, a budget. And that was predominantly funded by us ourselves. And then a few friends and a few people we knew from the, the work we'd done with rescue dogs in the UK. They started to donate little bits yeah. and pieces to it. So you start to do more work. And of course, I think after the I first... Think it, was about, it was about three years before we were getting money from the public. Three years yeah. before we became a registered charity. Because um, again, it was us it was initially, like family. then it was us and friends and family. Yeah. And, and then... And then us and mm. my consultancy paycheck. Yeah. <laughs> and... And I think you know it's probably around about 2010 that we we, we sort of started to professionalise. Uh, we then were running it remotely. I mean, because we're both project managers as well. So, so our, I mean, that that time scale is probably it's about quite, four or five years. Time, time yeah. um, and we were sort of getting to know the country and the problems. And then it was really in April 2012. We were we were discussing that how that we'd really reached a point that there was only so much we could do being out of the country and doing stuff remotely. And we, we were starting to run some Spain Youth programs. We had to subcontract another charity to do it because we just weren't here. And yeah, it was in 2012 we made the decision that we would move out here. And we'd been going through all the registration procedures to register as an NGO here, um, which allows you to, to live and work legally. And we actually moved out in 2013. We, we yeah. actually spent a lot of time learning about why the problems existed in that early stage. And we, you know, it was part-time, we'd be here for a few months, we'd go back to the UK, we'd earn money. So the sort of full-time where Dogstar switches over is in 2013, mm. um, in 2014. And that's when we started scaling up to do the mass programs that we do now. And yeah, from, from the one dog in 2006, we're now sterilizing approximately 950 dogs a month Wow! now so it's, it's and it's a very different program um, but we do actually have some of the same staff and the very very first staff member i employed in 2006 still works for us and is one of our supervisors wow amazing amazing so in terms of you know that journey between 2006 and 2013 when you sort of started to scale up even more there how did you find in, you know you're in a new country uh, I can imagine new cultures, new, obviously new language. How are you able to sort of integrate locally with the community as people coming in from the UK in Sri Lanka? How did you find that process and, and how did you go about it? I think 
um, very early on, I was very lucky because I was staying with a Sri Lankan family. So that, that was very helpful. Um, then we actually rented our own um, house, which was also in a village. And I think probably the answer is that we lived within the community. That I mean, it was quite in. a small village we lived in and, initially. And everybody knew everybody. Um, it was a bit like EastEnders. Um, there we there would, was one local bar and everyone yeah. used to go to it and on we would, we would drink in the local bar. We would buy all our fruit, veggies and the everything else from the, the local little local car day or local shop. And when we had mangoes on the trees in our garden, we would give them to the neighbours and then and they, they would give us bananas. bananas. So you just sort of live the life in the village as such. And I really. think, yeah, by living in the life in the village, you're living with the people whose dogs are your beneficiaries, but then those people are also your beneficiaries. So I think it's it's really important. And I think that time that we spent part-time here, you know, we've, we've made Sri Lankan friends and like learning that, that has been invaluable to not approaching problems the wrong way because it's so easy for NGOs or charities to come into another country and just lay over this, in the UK we do. Mm, mm. And it doesn't work. And it's, it, it's incredibly offensive. It's a little bit colonial, to say the least. But it, it also doesn't work because what works in one country doesn't work in another. And, you know, we often say to people when they say, oh, but there are street dogs everywhere. And you say, yes, because the government has a no-kill policy here. They, they, in 2006, the president said that the killing of street dogs was illegal and in other countries those dogs are collected by animal control and after a legal holding period they may be humanely euthanized so people in those countries aren't aware they have a problem because it's dealt with by officialdom and in in asia and in sri lanka because those problems are visible everybody sees them and it's very easy for people to judge and to say oh it's terrible they've got dogs everywhere a lot of dogs on the street are owned so that they're not they're not unsupported they're not stray dogs so i think that period of time living in the community and it really helped us understand how everything fitted together because it's not just there are dogs on the street it was a whole reason for why that's the way it is in a different country and i think if we had come in maybe in 2006 straight away with a we're gonna we're gonna run this this huge yeah i think we spent a lot of time initially just trying to learn watching and observing and asking questions and and making a conscious decision not to start banging on people's doors and you must do this or you must do that do you do you feel that your background in project management helped that very much so so. i I think that's one of the key skills that anyone who wants to get involved or, you know, is interested in getting involved in animal welfare should really train because that, you know, that idea of your project brief, then you're moving on to do your learning before you go and start even thinking about what sort of intervention you can deliver is so invaluable, isn't it? I think it is. And I think people often will say to me, I, I love your job. It must be great, like playing with puppies all day. <laughs> uh, um, when is that when exactly? is when is that and also the spay neuter program if you're playing with puppies and failed <laughs> there's a, a misconception about what it takes to run an organization and, and people say you know i really really love dogs i'd be good at that and i really love my own dogs so i have pet dogs and they're both sri lankan mescal dogs and i love them and they're my pets all the other dogs i have a huge concern about their welfare i've, I've got a compassion towards them, but I don't love them all because that would be unrealistic and would also be just, you wouldn't be a particularly effective project manager 
if you had like a massive emotional tie to every single animal. I think you have to take that step back and say, this animal's welfare is really important to me and I want to do a really good job for that animal, but it's, it's from a professional viewpoint. Um, and I think project management gives you that ability to step back. And it's also, it's other things. I mean, today we have spent hours at various government meetings yeah. to do with all the commissions that were required to work. Tomorrow we have more government meetings to do with rabies eradication programs we're running. And, and days will go by where the only dogs I actually see are my own dogs because we have a team, an amazing team of 25 Sri Lankans that are actually out there doing the work. And as, as the, the managers, the people that lead the team, our job is often to do paperwork or things that are not necessarily thought of as being exciting. Well, at the end of the day, you set out the strategy and the plan and everything else, and then it's just working a lot of the time behind the scenes to make sure that it happens and that the people that are doing the work have the equipment, the facilities and the support that they need to be carrying it out on a day-to-day basis. And I think that probably one of the best bits of advice I would give to anyone who says I want to set up my own charity is, you know, do you like paperwork? Do you like lots of meetings? Do you like the stresses and strains of, of senior management? If you really want to be hands-on with dogs, then you are much better volunteering for an existing organisation and doing something that that organisation might need, like puppy fostering or puppy walking or cleaning kennels. Or So I think it's re- people need to be really honest about what is it they want to get out of it. And running an organisation takes you away from the animals, but it gives you the ability to help the animals. And I think... For me, that's you know, that's the advice that I give. We get asked that a lot, don't mm, we? Yeah. It's such an important bit of objectivity that you, you've obviously brought into it. And that's, I guess, one of the reasons why the project has been a success. But one of the things that I know that you've, you've spoken about before, which is related to that, is because you you go through this, uh, this process, your project, the sterilization, the rabies vaccination in such a methodical and project management-y kind of way, it makes it a little bit difficult maybe sometimes to appear as sexy as some of the other animal welfare organizations that are all about like, here's the dog we rescued, here's the sad story. And while the impact that you're having is huge, you've obviously made a very conscious decision to approach it in in this way. And so how do you view how you talk about what you do when you're speaking to other people who maybe have a, a misconception about the kind of work that is animal welfare and rescue? Yeah, I mean, I think there are some really valid observations. One of the first things we get is people will contact us and go, can I visit your sanctuary or your shelter or your rehoming centre? I've had a look on the website and you go, well, you obviously haven't. <laughs> One. Um, so I think there is this automatic assumption that there must be some sort of holding facility for dogs if you're working with dogs. I think sometimes people yeah. see what they they think they want they to project see. On they what they kind of yeah. project it across. Yeah. So really. I think if you if you live in the UK where there are um, a number of very successful local and national charities that rehome dogs and you see those dogs having quite a sad story of just going into to a rescue centre and then they get advertised on the internet and a you know, very kind family give them a home. That becomes your benchmark for what you think dog animal welfare is. So a lot of the time it's just about understanding 
where the person is coming from and then explaining the differences between where they live and the, the communities that they might have interactions with and the communities here and the challenges we have here. And it is difficult. Spay neuter is not an excitable subject. I think sometimes the emotional element can be missing from some of our work because we're trying to be factual yep. and as scientific as you can by the simple fact of counting the number of dogs and measuring those dogs and, and keep monitoring and everything else so you can explain the percentage of animals that are sterilized and body condition scores and things like that and trying to do the science behind it sometimes that takes away the emotion or people don't see the emotion because they see the science yeah and i think we, we all know that emotion drives giving particularly with animals and children yeah. so um so that that can be a challenge and i think the other thing we try and explain is that we are not saying that what we do is the only way that animals can be helped in in any country least here and you know we work with a lot of sri lankan run organizations and there are some amazing sri lankan run organizations that are um you know rehoming puppies um, there's a, a great organization that's actually looking at pedigree dogs that are discarded from the breeding industry and they're looking to rehome those and so we work with lots of those organizations and we always say if, if we do our job well hopefully we reduce the strain on those guys that are really struggling to to deal with there being more dogs than, than good homes available. Ultimately, overpopulation is the root cause of the issue, many of the issues with animal welfare and everything else. But it, it I, doesn't mean that we would say that what we do is it's, more it's not worthy be all or better and, than... No. And, but, you know, uh, organisations that, that look after dogs that have accidents, organisations that rehome dogs, organisations that are, you know, maybe going into schools and talking to children. It's all part of the same process about animal welfare. And I think... It's really dangerous if you say, this is my model and only my model works or my model is better than everyone else's. And, you know, we are incredibly grateful for our local Sri Lankan colleagues who run these organisations that do successfully home some dogs. And it can be a bit difficult when we are talking to people because um, they want the individual dog story. To um, be honest, it can be a bit disheartening sometimes, actually, kind of, you know, because you sit there and you think, wow, we sterilised safely and properly, without any after effects, 958 dogs last month. And yet all this one person who's emailing me about is concerned about a skinny dog they saw on the beach. And because to them, that skinny dog on the beach brings out the emotion and everything else. Yeah. And they've got absolutely no interest in the 958 dogs that we've just sterilised. I think one of the funniest emails we ever had was a, a lady that had emailed in about a dog and she sent the photograph and it actually looked quite healthy dog and seemed to be well supported by its community and i'd gone back and i tried to be really rational and sort of explained that we'd sterilized over eleven thousand dogs the year before and, and how we were working with the local groups that rehome dogs and she wrote back and went yes i think you probably think you're doing a good job but you really need to build we um, really need to come and cuddle this puppy. Yeah, but you really need to build a center so this dog can come and live in it and you know i, I just thought that was quite telling that that, you know, after everything, she was like, you probably think you're doing a good job, but actually you're not. And I think where, um, where we probably sit with people that maybe understand more about the motivation is more in the scientific community, mm. in, the, in the universities, major grant givers, uh, larger animal welfare organisations, because they look at impact and sustainability. So it, it can be that, yeah, it can be very difficult sometimes to connect with one individual on Facebook 
Um, yeah. and, you know, we, we, all, we have a bit of a saying in the office, and I think you've probably heard me say this, Harry, that animal welfare is everything that an individual animal feels and experiences, and it's its ability to cope in its individual situation, and ethics is what we think about it. And, and for us, it's, it's really about the animal welfare of the dogs that we are dealing with, because they are our ultimate beneficiaries. And as much as it would be amazing to have a, a huge social media following, really doing a good job for those dogs is is how we can measure our success. I'm not surprised that people sometimes think we're a bit dull. Um, when we write stuff on Facebook, sometimes we actually say, gosh, yeah. we really are. That's boring. <laughs> we are being boring. <laughs> You know, when we talk about a figure like our first major project zone, we worked in the fourth largest city in Sri Lanka. We took the sterilization rate from 7.9% to over 80%. Um, Which we think is marvellous and brilliant yeah. and so, so sexy. But apparently it's not Instagrammable. So it can be a little bit. Um, Maybe just write that percentage on the side of a cute puppy. Yeah. <laughs> and, and post that picture and and then that way you appeal to both sides of the audience <laughs> i think the next natural step for us now is i think what is dog star i know that sounds really silly but you know the net to learn more about the the amazing work you're doing and first of all i would say that what you're doing is is fantastic so i think a nice place to start with is you've touched on this very briefly but what when you went there did you find the sri lankan's overall attitude was to dogs what what were what were the attitudes what were the barriers you were facing or what were the positives as well i think overall and obviously it's it's hard to generalize because they're in every situation you're going to find people that love dogs hate dogs are cruel to dogs but overall there was an acceptance of the dogs being there on the street yeah there was the overriding generals the acceptance they are they are community dogs the street dogs they are here what, where people were struggling was with the number of them. So, you know, people would sort of say, you know, I don't dislike dogs, I don't want really to be cruel to dogs, um, and I, I put some food and water out, but there's 20 of them outside my gate, and I, I can't feed 20, or, you know, they're, they're barking at my dog or whatever. So it, it was really about the sort of sheer numbers were weighing down communities. And we talk a lot about carrying capacity, and we talk about, in a, you know, if you have a hundred dogs in a village, they all need to have somewhere to sleep and eat and get water. And you know, we know that when carrying capacity is exceeded, welfare decreases. But human tolerance is actually a part of carrying capacity. So you know, if you're in a village and there are lots and lots of dogs running around and they're barking at night because they're all sexually active and they're keeping you awake and you've got to get up at four o'clock in the morning because you're a bus driver, you're probably not going to be as um, a huge fan of street dogs, um, as you might be if an intervention has happened and there's less dogs and they're not sexually active. So, so it's really hard to generalise. We, we found that the challenges were that people were just overloaded with the number of dogs that they had mm. or that they were trying to support in their community. Obviously, within those communities, you are going to have people that are cruel to dogs, but that is across every country in the world. Obviously, yeah. people that were incredibly kind and loved dogs to, I mean, locally, though, like, I mean, you've got lots of little, you know, England was a nation of shopkeepers, but actually Sri Lanka's a nation of shopkeepers, yes, really. And, you know, all the little car days beside the road would have little groups of dogs that are outside they because the they will feed them as a matter of course, because it's a nice and kind thing to do. And generally speaking, our experience is that 
people just accept it? Whilst there are some people that, and we do get asked, you know, can you, can you take all the dogs away? But overall, most people are, if you can make the balance between people and the dogs more equal, then generally people are not averse to having them there. And obviously, it's a spectrum. So you're going to have people on each end where people who absolutely adore dogs, and then we know people that absolutely despise dogs with a passion. But you'd probably find that spectrum in any any sort of country. And it's just the things that they are worried about are different in different countries. Um, probably where it gets more tricky is that though everyone is quite happy to feed the dogs, if the individual dog gets sick, then no one person is taking full responsibility to, to get that dog to it. Mm, might yeah. not be possible for And them again, to it's do. this yeah. same level of acceptance, isn't it? Oh, that dog's poorly. Yeah. But just not necessarily doing anything about it. And that, just accepting That it. might be the fact that there, there isn't a vet locally or there isn't um, the ability for someone to get the dog into a vehicle or perhaps they can't hire a tuk-tuk who will take the dog or they're worried if they pick the dog up it might bite them. So there's lots of different reasons for why um, dogs might not be looked after in, in the same way that we would think of in, in a Western country. But it's, it's just understanding how it all fits in together. You know, but we, we found that the overriding community response to our work is positive. We have um, lots and lots of people in, in the community that they, they will come out, they'll bring their animals, they'll bring their neighbours' animals. Uh, when our dog catchers and collection teams are out, they'll be directing us to where animals are. You know, we've had some Benny Hill-esque moments yeah. in the fish market where all the local fishermen were trying to help us catch dogs. And it was, I don't know how we Which catch the Which is a sight to behold. To I honestly don't know how we didn't catch the fishermen because they were <laughs> instead of the, the dog. But, you know, people are um, very, very keen. Like people will flag the vehicles down when they see us and the staff are in uniform and ask for help. Um, yeah, there are lots of local tuk-tuk drivers that regularly stop Mark to show him pictures of their dogs and ask do the dogs need flea treatment. Um, so, yeah, there is a, a good community response. But within that community, yes, there are people that like dogs and people that don't. And we're probably really aiming at the people in the middle because they're the largest group. And the people who already love dogs, we don't need to talk to because they already love dogs. So, um, And then the people that don't, we always say to people, if you love dogs, support what we do. And if you hate dogs, support what we do because there'll be less of them healthier and your streets will be safer and so we're trying to appeal to two markets yeah. really so you've got you know you explained absolutely fantastically there you've got a large population of i like to i prefer to use the term community dogs as well i really like that term so you've got kind of like a they're unowned or owned but they're community dogs you know they're being fed maybe and what i what i loved was you you briefly touched on why people aren't able to solve that problem themselves in that situation so you you then move on to how you're going to solve that problem. And that is your humane dog population management program. And also I can imagine your street dog healthcare program. Just for the listeners, could you just explain that program and, and why, what you need to do to tackle an over um, populated community of dogs? And what, what do you mean by spay and neutering? Because, you know, we know what that means, but maybe not everyone knows what we mean by that and maybe rabies and, and the sort of things that you do with that, if that's okay. And probably Benny Hill as well, uh, but we'll explain that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, the, the, the core of our work is the spay-neuter programme. 
We're basically we are desexing, sterilizing, sterilizing male and female dogs that we catch and owners bring to us to prevent them from breeding. So over time, in an area, if you, we work in concentrated areas, we Nagumbo we divided into thirty six zones. We go into an area, we count how many dogs there are, so we know how many dogs we've got on day one, and then. There are some debates now, but we've always worked on this 70%. If you sterilize or new to 70%, Sam is shaking her head at me now because I'm old world. I think it's much higher. I mean, we think our experience is that it is higher than 70% of animals need to be sterilized in an area to then humanely reduce over time the population. But when we first started doing this, 70% was seen as being the magic figure. Well, people, I think it was because it was a vaccination figure that had been proven, so people would, would often use it. But, yeah. I mean, it's really, we go into these manageable chunks, we count the dogs, we, are, we, we have some amazing international partners, we work with Worldwide Veterinary Service and Mission Rabies, who have developed a, an amazing mobile phone application that allows us to collect the data. So we will literally go out, and our guys are using smartphones, to GPS tag all the dogs they see and ask, we ask questions about you know, what is the dog? Is it a male dog, a female dog? Its age, its body condition, its skin. So that gives us this really good baseline where we say, well, this particular subsection of this area has 150 dogs and 90 plus percent of them are, are not sterilized. And then we literally go back in, we literally create a couple plan. We have teams that then go in, community teams that work uh, sensitizing the community, talking about what we're doing. We will then advertise clinics. We'll, we'll actually work with the community to have an area that we can move our mobile surgery truck to. And, and so literally we will then take the clinics into the community, deliver the program, and then we regularly review how that looks. So we then go back and check, you know, are there new dogs? Have we sterilized sufficient dogs? Is there a decrease in puppies? And then we will move on to different areas or we'll, we'll work and then come back. So it's, it's very much counting how many dogs there are, doing some work, going away, leaving it a little bit of time, seeing how it settles, and then going back if need be. And it's, it's an ongoing process because people bring new dogs in. You don't sterilize them all. So there are some dogs that, that are um, being bred. And there are households that won't have their dog sterilized, but when the dog has puppies, they'll dump the puppies on the street. Because in some areas, there are people that are culturally sensitive to sterilizing, but they don't want to hurt the puppies, so they, they wouldn't necessarily drown them, as you might in other mm. countries. So, But then they'll put them onto the street to give them a chance at living. So that person believes they're being quite compassionate, but obviously, from our point of view, they've been quite irresponsible and they're introducing more puppies onto the street. So, but of course, um, over the life cycle of that program, because it's not a quick fit, it's a, a long-term thing. Over the life cycle, if you've got 150 dogs in the zone, over two, three, four years, that number of dogs will come down. And then the dogs that remain, generally speaking, are healthier because there's more resources locally for those. The males are not running all over the place fighting with each other because there's a female in heat less of a, a nuisance to the human population within those zones. And because they're not a nuisance, people are more inclined to feed them. And generally speaking, the dogs are healthier in those areas. So, it, But it doesn't 
it's not a quick thing. It, no. it does take time. How does that, because um, obviously that, that leads very, very well into the partners that you work with and particularly government, national and local, for example. So like projects like this can't work in isolation and you need the support of local government and, and local representatives, which clearly you have. But how did they approach you or how did you approach them? And what was the their view of you coming in and proposing this and dealing with, as you said, like an issue that affects the community? They obviously have legislation in place. You mentioned before that, that, that there's a no-kill policy, but clearly they either didn't prioritize it or didn't have the capacity to work on it. So how did they view you coming in and how did you manage to build that collaborative relationship that I guess you must have now with the government? Yeah, um, so that there have been since 2006, a number of um, national Spain Eater programs um, run in Sri Lanka and they've been under different departments and it's moved from the health ministry to animal back to health ministry. And one of the, the problems we all face here is that there aren't as many vets per sort of person or per dog in the, the country as, as there would be in other countries. We have one veterinary university that um, trains between sort of 50 to 80 vets a year in a country of 21 million people. Um, the, the resources in the Spain-Uter have been quite thin. So one of the things that we've, we've tried to do is to accepting that none of us have enough vets, that we, we've looked at building our program to try and show how a concentrated program in one area could deliver really good sustainable results because all of us have the same issues with we don't have enough veterinary staff that can be allocated to this straight away um, because they're, they're working in other fields or because more traditionally the methods of Spain Utah were to, to go to different maybe different villages on different weeks of the year so what we you know, the partners that we've worked with we've said look this is we're going to take a slightly different approach to it and what we're going to do is show you how using this project management tools we're going to try and with the shortest amount of, of intervention get you the largest impact um, and because we we are working you know we have a fantastic veterinary team here what we're trying to do is to create something that is replicable so that so that any group of Sri Lankan vets and assistants and project managers can replicate what we're doing and see the same levels of success. And I think that's really where we're coming at it from. And I think one of another piece of advice I would really give if you're going to work somewhere is don't cut corners, don't try and do things underhanded. We, we went to the mayor's office in the, the city, you know, spoke to the commissioner, we got all the commissions to work. And, you know, three or four years later, they're at meetings telling people, oh, we had these, this NGO in and they did a really good job for us. And then that gets the ear of someone else who says, you know, actually, I'd, I'd like to talk to these guys. So I think by being sort of above board, doing it well, and keeping all the stakeholders involved means that as political sort of will changes and different departments get involved. You've you already get a level of consistency that still you move that between. You and I think that's really important. And again, that's a lot of what, what Mark and I do is spending time talking to our, our local government partners and also understanding the challenges that they have um, and can we actually help with that. And a lot of the meetings that we have are based on us all being very honest with each other. Um, you know, we're transparent to them. 
they feel they can be transparent to us and then we can work together to fix the problem. And I, I think it's really important not to be critical if the government are struggling with something because obviously for us, we're animal welfare people. Animal welfare is very important to us, but we might be dealing with a department, the health department we deal with has responsibility for 2.4 million people in their area and they have to provide hospitals and midwifery services and um, services for vaccination for children and services for elders. So whilst animal welfare is really important to us, it's one thing that they have to do and they have a budget to deliver all of those things. So um, it's, it's really important to, to go wide in your thinking and understand that what may be really important to you is not going to be the absolute most important person thing to the person in front of you. And I think if you you can do that, mm. you get a lot more um, out of your interactions with them. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing work. How, looking back at 2006, when you went down this journey, what do you now, looking back through those years that have gone by, what have you loved most about the work you've done? And also, do you think you've changed as people? And if so, how? Ooh. 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 Good, good question, eh? <laughs> Crikey, yeah, that's a good one. I mean, we've, <laughs> well, the funny thing is, <clears throat> so we record all the data and everything else, and we've got Excel spreadsheets and everything else coming out of our ears, telling us how many dogs we've done in this area, that area, how many males, females, how many owner brought and everything else. But quite often we don't look back. So it, sometimes we look in awe when we do every now and then look at a report and think, my God, we've actually, rabies vaccinated that many dogs or that many vaccinations, we've sterilised that many dogs and so many in this area. And it's, it's quite shocking when you look back at it, really, and you think, how on earth did we do that? So it's a bit of an eye-opener. What have you enjoyed the best? <clears throat> Don't say your days off. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I had this dream once of retiring to a tropical island. <laughs> How's that working out for you, Mark? And I think I now work more hours and work harder than I ever did on the road. I, I think we probably honest. do for better results. I mean, you I know, it's, it, it is amazing to look back and see what's been done. It's scary then to look forward and think how much more still needs to be done. It's Truly remarkable to look back. I mean, Sam mentioned that the original person that worked for Dogstar from 2006 still works for Dogstar now and now manages a team of other people yeah. and does things. It's quite remarkable to look at that as well. And that brings a tremendous amount of pride. I think, yeah, for, for me, my favourite bit of it has to be the building the team. I think, yeah. So Sam Path, he, he was actually my tuk-tuk driver. And he used to take me to the temples when I was like feeding this, these dogs, these original dogs. And he would get out and help me. And um, bit by bit, got more and more involved. And yeah, now he's a supervisor and an amazing guy that, mm. that you know, is just absolutely blossomed. Odd little things, isn't it, sometimes? It's the little things that are sometimes really nice. So you'll be standing at a clinic and you've got a pen with dogs in it that are waiting for surgery or recovering from surgery 
and one of the team members will go in completely unexpected and will just sit there and start stroking a particular dog and, and things like that. Or when a dog's put on a prep table, prepared for surgery, and one of the handlers starts stroking the dog's ears Even if or it's things unconscious. like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you just stand there and think, oh, actually, that's really, really nice, and it's something to actually be quite proud of, really, in a very simple and very small way. But it is, it is quite sweet and quite yeah. nice. I mean, I think definitely for me, it's it's the team, and it's giving people that you know already liked animals the opportunity to work in that field. And all our staff really do like animals. There is a stereotype, um, and it's often perpetuated by foreign charities that all people in another country are evil or don't like dogs or are horrible to dogs and that they're stupid and that there's you know only the the great white mm. savior ngo can come in and save the animals and i think for us to see our staff and like mark said you know watching somebody that is stroking an unconscious dog and they're not doing it because they're being observed they're just doing it because the other guy is doing something to the dog and they're just stroking it even though it's unconscious at that point that just demonstrates their, their sort of commitment to what they do and, and I think yeah that's probably the thing that that I'm the most proud of and that I'm that I think mm. is the most visible thing that you can see if you, you come and actually like, see the work that we do. That's so lovely and and the bird in the background is very appreciative of it yeah, as well. <laughs> the birds are coming in. Have we changed people? Um, I guess we must have changed as people, really. In what ways, I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, I think working in a, in a foreign country and everything else, you, you learn patience, maybe. Am I more patient than I used to be? I'm not sure. I, I must be, must really. Be. I must be. I think you must be. Um, you probably have had a stroke. I'll tell you one thing it has done. It's made us older. <laughs> 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 Look back at some of the pictures. pictures of us about six years Actually, ago, and I'm like, wow. Um, you know, <laughs> certainly aged. I mean, I, I'm 47, and someone asked me recently if I was drawing my UK state pension. Um, Ouch. Yeah, that was, that was quite confronting. Um, and that was someone from England. Um, so, <laughs> how, how hard did you hit them? <laughs> using the patience that we've learned. Um, <laughs> um, probably. I think maybe what motivates us has changed. I think when we worked in the corporate sector, we were both high-earning individuals. <laughs> Boy, that's not happening now. No. Um, and we were very driven by performance equals a bonus, performance equals you know getting some sort of internal award. And I think now that, yeah, probably what motivates us is you know, those little things like seeing the staff do well at the clinic or you know, when, when the staff deal with a particular situation, it's difficult or when you go out and like you drive through the fish market and you might drive past 20 dogs over a 10 minute drive and every single one of them has got an ear tip which means that it's been sterilized that's a tiny section of its ear that's taken i mean out. not that we're sad or anything else like that but something <laughs> driving around you know oh that's one of ours that's one of ours that's one of ours that one's still with its collar on, you know. And it's uh, so that brings a lot of joy. Yeah. And I think that they're, they're the things that probably motivate us now. I think, yeah, that are different to the things that used to. Like success looks different to us now. If if you had the opportunity to speak to the Sam and Mark in two thousand and six, 
the, the the you that didn't know what you were letting yourselves in for, the yous that saw this opportunity but had no idea where it was going to lead. What advice would you give yourselves now, knowing what you know and seeing, having seen what you've seen and the successes that you've had and obviously the, the things that you've had to overcome? What bits of advice would you give yourselves? I think my advice would have been you can do it because I think if I had known what I knew now, if I had known what the journey was going to look like, my my default would have been I can't do it. I absolutely mm. can't do it. So um, that that would be the first thing that actually is possible. I think probably the advice that I would have given myself would have been to use your business skills more and to, to use your project management earlier. I think I almost thought it had to be a separate life. I was like, this is, I put that away and but I'm going to do it. We did think that because... Yeah. The day I retired from the railways, I almost cast everything from the railways out of my mind. And then it was a, a while after, wasn't it, really? Yeah. We suddenly came up with visualisation boards for the wards, for managing manage things, things and everything else, which yeah. were all project management tools that we'd learned on the railways. I think, yeah, using skills that you have in other parts of your life um, and the animal welfare as a career or as a profession is not standalone and separate from other things. So you need to be a good manager, you need to be a good negotiator, you need to be a good listener in the HR department and all those things. And you know, everybody has skills that they've learned in other parts of their life. So I would say, yeah, you use those earlier. And also maybe to have believed in it a bit more because at the beginning I, I, I would never have seen it that it could expand the way that it has and I think it is that, that very slow burn oh, I mean the other one is run run <laughs> run for the hills you said that because you know it, we started off to employ a vet to treat some dogs and then it's like you do a few sterilizations as well because locally there's too many dogs and at no point really certainly in the early days was a strategic plan no. put together mm -hmm. to Say, right, well, eventually what we're going to do, we're going to be sterilising a thousand dogs a month and babies vaccinating yeah, a thousand dogs a month. And it so incredible. We never set out to be a charity, never set out to be an NGO as such. It all kind of evolved out of necessity as we went through. So, possibly the one piece of advice I would give the 2006 is look ahead and think what it could achieve and start planning, planning it for that now. now. That's good advice. How many animals have you uh, treated altogether, uh, vaccinated and sterilised? Do you know? It's about 64,000 individual rabies vaccinations. And that's in support. Wow. Rabies. That's in support with Mission Rabies. Um, mm -hmm. It's been about 45,000 sterilisations across the whole of the country. Uh, Amazing. Wow. And... Oh, well, individual treatments. Individual treatments. Probably twice. Probably twice or hundred thousand. It's probably because we, yeah, from you know, that, and that's everything varying from flea treatments, worming treatments, so, to hospital treatments and leg amputations and things like that. Really. Uh, so I mean, the numbers are. I find the numbers vast, to be honest, because we never set out to do that. As such, it was just, oh, yeah, you know, help set, a few dogs. Set out to, to help one dog called Mango and her monk. And that, but, you that, know, was, we, that was it. We've been very lucky as well. You know, ultimately, we, we got advice from people early on, which you well know, Harry, because we spoke to you before we kicked off the, the sort of big spay and stuff. Yeah, and you were still a success. Dogs <laughs> trust, uh, 
supported us and tremendously supported us. I you know, Mission Rabies with the Rabies support, WDS and everything else. So we, we have been very lucky as well. The networking and the conferences we've been to and the people that we've met over the years, um, See, that's I mean, been a huge... Yeah, because we made some mistakes early on and some of those mistakes were we didn't go to events. Because we thought we were too Because we thought, one, we were too small, two, they were too expensive. But actually, we realised that we missed out on so much additional help, knowledge in the first, and years. information in the first couple of years because the first couple of years we did become our own little silo. And I think, um, yeah, certainly if I was giving advice to other people, it's certainly network, you know, do conferences, do online training, online conferences, um, just get involved with, with other groups that are working in the same areas, either geographically or the same cause, because there is a huge amount you can learn from people. And people will share their mistakes with you as well. We've all made them. Um, and, and that's that's fine. You don't have to know it all. None of us, um, very few people sort of leave school and go, that's it, I'm going to be an animal welfare professional. Most of us find our way to it via other things. Um, yeah. variety of and people come into the profession at different ages for different reasons. So you know, there's always somebody that, that will know more than you. And there's always somebody that you can give a help up to or just a bit of advice to because yeah. you've been there. And that, that can make a big difference to them. And whatever that bird is, it's agreeing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is a bird with some very strong opinions. <laughs> what, um, what can people do? Anybody listening to this, what can they do to help you, support you, um, find out more about your work? Uh, visit the website, which is www.dogstarfoundation.com. Which will be in a link in the description of this podcast. Click the link. I mean, people can obviously... Your sort of traditional financial support donate is obviously amazing and very very helpful. Particularly small monthly donations, they make a huge difference for planning. Um, but there are also, yeah, also other things people can do, oh, like yeah, Facebook, donate your birthday, liking and sharing on social media is actually an incredibly helpful, powerful thing way of powerful helping. Way of actually, helping. Yeah, us as a group. So it's really you know if you're if you're coming to Sri Lanka, um, you know, to, to sort of support the local groups here, and there are many. Um, so you know you can you can Google and find out who's who's working in the area that you're visiting. And you know if you if you are sort of visiting in Asia, I think if you um, one of the things that we find people can really do, we work with a number of hotels in our local area who are very supportive and they put signs up saying that they support our work. And I think if you are travelling and you find a good animal friendly hotel or a bar restaurant, it's giving those guys a good trip advisor with you. Because it really rewards them for being good guys and it helps progress other people coming mm. on board. So there's, there's a whole range of things that, that people can do to help us and to help the Lankan dogs and to help the whole um, profession in, in general. We've always said that nobody is too small to make an individual difference somewhere. So, you know, the, the, no matter, it, it can be really overwhelming. It can seem like there just are oh, so many dogs everywhere. What do you do? And yeah, you, you know, you support a charity, support us, support another charity working in this sort of field. You know, just just help somebody locally who's helping a dog. And it's you know, if everybody does something, it really does add up. And we, we talk about it as a ripple effect, don't mm. we? That that one action has a ripple, and that ripple is sort of kindness and compassion, and it it spreads out, and then it encourages more people to get involved. So. Um, yeah, never, never feel that you're too small. To There's a ripple effect from Bandaraika International yes, Airport. Yes, it's a very large plane. <laughs>
That was a great, great show. And it wasn't even a show. That was really. Yeah. It was really good, wasn't it? They're such a lovely couple. Yeah. Oh, they're amazing. They're absolutely amazing. I have heard of Dogstar, obviously, but to actually hear their personal story is so powerful. So powerful yeah. and really inspirational. And I thought the bird, I mean, what that bird added to the whole conversation, to the whole interview, I I, I think was just brilliant. What, yeah, what that bird had to say about their work. I was talking about the bird. Yeah. The bird was inspiration. Oh, yeah. The bird was, the bird was the best part of that. Part. Sorry, Sam. Sorry, Mark. Yeah. But that bird was, we're having the bird back next week yep. for its own uh, for its own podcast. Pitch perfect as well. The way it, <laughs> yeah, it was. brought a lump in my throat out and hairs on the end of my arms stood on end. I was goosebumped. <laughs> Harry, I had goosebumps. It was moving. It was deeply moving. To hear firsthand the story of that bird was beautiful. Um, So if anybody, all of you who are listening, especially Charlotte 2631 (laughs) in Columbia, wherever you are, the next podcast is going to be one you don't want to miss. So if anybody wants to listen to it, what do they need to do, Matt? Well, they can check us out on our Podbean website at animalchat.podbean.com. They can also download and listen to the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, YouTube, all those. And anywhere you listen to a podcast, you will find us. We are there. And please get in touch with us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Uh, Let us know what you're thinking. Touch base with Harry and I. But always, please remember, share, like, subscribe five-star reviews, please. It'll help us be able to reach more people with our podcast and keep uh, getting everyone to listen to our absolute nonsense, Harry, that we speak. Oh, you're starting to sound more desperate now. <laughs> I've got no shame. With Harry. It was going so well. And then you just, and then you started begging. And yeah. it, was just, it, was making me, it was actually making me feel a bit dirty. But, uh, I think. Okay. <laughs> so uh do all that crap that i just said and um yeah but as always thank you for listening yeah and uh see you next time everyone see you next time Bye. bye